Welcome to Command Shift Left, the podcast that helps you navigate the treacherous waters of the software development, ops, and security world while also diving into the hot current trends in the industry. Join myself, developer Philip, our co-host or vice. Hey audience. As we battle through hilarious real-world stories, pro tips and hacks for navigating your way around developer security, learning about our shift left life and life stories that have saved our ass. For this episode, we have two wonderful guests. We have Dr. Sarah Gothelis. I hope I'm pronouncing it correct. Correct. Gothel. So <laughs> you'll hear more from her in a second. And uh, also uh, Rizzo. And uh, this would be a great time for you to share about yourself. Let's start with you, Rizel. Hey, everyone. Uh, I'm a staff developer advocate at a company called TBD. Um, they're basically like a business unit within Block. Um, what about myself? that I would want to tell people. I host a weekly live stream where I talk to different developers about like open source or digital identity solutions. Um, and if y'all want to tune in, it's at twitch.tv.tvdevs. Amazing. Sarah, how about yourself? Yeah. Hi, everyone. I'm Sarah Guffles and I lead DevRel at Sentry. Um, prior to this, I've done pretty much everything related to educating developers of all ages and experience levels from teaching children into, as young as five to teaching university students, uh, writing books. Uh, most latest one was GitHub for Dummies. Um, and I like to build software that helps developers make cool stuff. Uh, so anything that I can do related to content or software um, to help developers is, is my jam. Wonderful. And I have to say Sentry is one of my uh, most beloved DevTool companies. Uh, been a fan for a while, so it's really great to have you here. We should probably have uh, David Kramer come in at some point as well. Definitely. Awesome. So I think this is a great point to start with our first fact, and that fact actually comes from me. And my fact for this episode is that IPv4 was set at 32-bit address space on a whim. So uh, Vince Cerf was known as one of the fathers of the internet. He was working as a developer at DARPA and uh, he was basically tasked with uh, designing the headers, the structures for the uh, both IP and TCP. And he was basically thinking about this, hmm, how big do we need to make the address space? And he just went, I think like 32-bit, that, that should suffice. No, he just asked his boss and, it was about, and his boss was like, yeah, 30-bit, that, 32-bit, that's a lot. So in like integers, like amount of addresses, that's 4 billion, uh, two, 294 million and a little over uh, addresses. So it's 2 to the power of 32. And yeah, at the time when you just had a couple of universities, a few uh, uh, Ministry of Defense uh, and other kind of uh, um, or government organizations on the on the really early web, that seemed like enough. And obviously that's not enough today. Uh, we're actually at the point where AWS has started to charge you more uh, for IP4 addresses because they're just, they're more rare. They're more, they're a commodity that is hard to get. Um, so it's kind of funny to think that uh, something very, very basic, like a developer just picking uh, the type, the size or type of memory size for, uh, for, uh, uh, for their code dramatically changes our entire world. And now we're all struggling to, we're so far, I think it's already 20 years with it. We're trying to work uh, work our way and move to IPv6. But 
we're not there yet. And it actually costs us a lot of money just because Vint uh, thought that 32 bit is enough. Um, I have a follow up fact here, but first I want to ask you folks, uh, wh what do you think about this? What do you think about our ability to affect the world as developers just by picking a, uh, <laughs> a size for our, uh, for our types? This is something that I always try to bring up, especially with folks who are learning to program at whatever age, is that a lot of decisions are just decisions an individual person made, whether it's the design of a language and why, you know, Python uses tabs and, you know, Java uses curly braces or whatever the, the, the thing is. It's really just a bunch of decisions. And so it's important when you're developing especially in my line, like dev tools to think about how someone might use this tool in the future. Um, and it's, but, but it's all just going to be a decision. Um, like it's, it's, there's no, there's no magic crystal ball to help us like understand exactly what decision we should make. Um, so, you know, like one of my other favorites is, is the difference between um, GitHub and the way that they think about source control and then the way that Microsoft did prior to the GitHub acquisition. Uh, I was on the team that led uh, GitHub integrations into Visual Studio, and we would often get developers putting in issues saying, hey, this GitHub integration isn't working. It's like, actually, it's the Visual Studio Git integration that isn't working. And when we would go talk to the folks at Microsoft, they were like, well, how are you sorting this, you know, like this source control? Like, how are you resolving these conflicts? And their their model was just completely upside down from ours. So just, That's you know, good. understanding that software is literally built by humans. Well, we'll see about that for long, but. <laughs> I I love that you brought that up. Um, just because, so you were, you were bringing up the fact that, you know, we should think about how, like, you're developing your software but i was also thinking about like how you mentioned students um i i've, I've also taught people how to code um like i yeah. ran a nonprofit doing that and people like that are new to coding they don't realize how like creative coding is and they get really caught up like i was like almost giggling at like not at the student but with this this student because they like took out a ruler they were trying to like measure the pixel <laughs> and i was like you don't need to do that like a lot of software like you're saying is just like sometimes a random decision and sometimes you have to experiment and see like does this work does this hit if not let's see how we like change it yeah but let's say you could go back in time like you can teleport now back to the 70s sit next to vent and tell him uh maybe use 64 bit or something else would you well honestly i don't know that that would necessarily change a lot like i feel like we would just end up like folks would end up using you know ip addresses differently to monopolize on the like you know multiple multiplier number of of addresses available and so maybe we wouldn't have run into you know the issue of needing ipv6 like right away but or like as soon as we did but i, I still think there would have just been another type of of issue kind of arising i feel like especially as developers we like to push the envelope right like we like to get right up to that boundary and say why is this boundary here let me try to push through it and so you know that's i i feel like no matter what we would have just kind of reached that boundary and and in some way <laughs> but yes <laughs> yeah i i think that there's like there are implications to both sides so now now you increase the size of that packet 
And we need to remember back at that date that there was a lot of memory. So that might have slowed down networks or uh, slowed down even the progress of networks. Who knows? Um, but I, I definitely want to be able to run that experiment, like go back in time and see where you humanity ends just by changing a variable, that uh, variable <laughs> type, not even the value, right. the variable type. Uh, so that would be exciting. And uh, by the way, Vince What Scherf, if Ada Lovelace could run her program on the, <laughs> on Charles yeah. Babbage's machine, right? Like, I, I think it would be a completely different reality now. Like, uh, like uh, <laughs> we, we, we already be like in the singularity. <laughs> um, another cool fact that kind of follows here is that uh, Vint Cerf is still building these type of protocols. He just uh, graduated into like the big leagues and he's working with Google and with, uh, 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 with NASA on interplanetary communication protocols. And that's something that I kind of like to think about because it has a lot of interesting challenges. So one of the basic things that you have in like a control protocol like TCP is agreeing on the size of window or the pace where you're sending packets. And physics, when you do interplanetary, when you do, you do long distances like that, physics gets in the way. It's uh, so this is actually a great question for like uh, uh, job job interviews for developers. Just think about how you manage to synchronize something uh, when. Uh, you don't have the ability to take time into uh, uh, calculation easily. There was um, a really interesting, uh, I, w I did an internship with NASA JPL, Jet Propulsion Lab, um, when I was an undergrad. And that was the time when they had the Mars rover stuck. Curiosity was stuck. And like it could, I am pretty sure that was the one. Um, and And it took 24 hours because they had to wait until the moon was visible in the sky <laughs> to send a message, right? And so, and then also like it took a long time, the packets had to be very small. And so to help get the rover unstuck, they actually recreated the like area that the rover was in, but down here on earth, optimized Whoa. for the number, like the fewest number of changes to the position of the rover to get unstuck and then sent them one at a time over the course of like a week. Um, but yeah, they had to like think about like, how can we debug this rover, this hardware from Earth on, you know, like it just, yeah. It, would, know, it was either the Mars or the moon. I can, I can't. <laughs> and I know developers that complain about setting up another database instance in AWS to do their, to replicate their <laughs> in, incidents and errors. So, so yeah, that gives you some proportion, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. And I think this is a perfect time to move to our second fact. And that fact belongs to you, Sarah. Uh, take it away. Yeah, so my fact for this episode is that the performance issue that you're experiencing in your app is likely coming from a third-party script. Ooh, like statistically? Yeah. Yes, statistically. So so essentially, um, and I don't have the, the exact details on the statistics yet, but I'm going to be writing about this soon. Um, but essentially, you know, Nowadays, especially, everyone is running additional kind of third-party apps or scripts on your site or on your mobile app, whether it's for ads or it's for social integrations or it's just for analytics. Um, you know, you have some other third-party script running on your app. And obviously with Sentry, you know, we're always thinking about performance and helping folks identify, you know, where that performance issue is happening. Um, and as we started to build out our support for distributed tracing, which is 
being able to tr trace performance issues or errors from the front end all the way down to the back end, all the way to your database calls, all the way to your server and to the third party, you know, applications. Uh, mm -hmm. It really, really shines that it's like almost always, not almost always, but it is a large percentage. Uh, I think it's just like just over 50% of the time you're having a performance issue. It's not actually your fault. Uh, so still like, you know, optimize your images, optimize your your code, uh, but also start thinking about what is necessary for your site. Um, and so I have a follow up to this. But before that, I wanted to ask you all kind of, have you experienced major performance issues? Where kind of were they? And or what are what is like something that you stay away from because you want to avoid that kind of issue, whether it's performance or error based? Yeah. I actually had an issue recently with uh, SQL Alchemy in in Python. Um, so a lot of time, for a long time, I thought that uh, we thought that the issue was the database itself, like the time it takes it to uh, process the queries. But it actually wasn't. It's the serialization of the data coming from the database being done by that third party. And, and we're like, why am I using this? It's just making, it's just saving me time writing SQL. And it's doing a terrible job at it. So it's it's one of those things that are easy to start with and then you kind of regret maybe later. So yeah, so that's a, a top of mind example. But yeah, I can think of a lot of times where uh, performance issues crept into my software through a third party solution. Though I haven't, I wasn't aware that this is the, and it actually kind of makes sense because more and more of your code is third party code as we exactly. move forward. Yeah, which uh, I think I is good, aware of but it. like, yeah, it's a it's a challenge. <laughs> that also connected to the point you mentioned before that when you are developing dev tools, yeah, that when you develop dev tools, the your consumers or customers are actually creating bugs and blame you on that, right? So there's a cycle that never ends of third party to third party to third party that create bugs and you'll never solve that, you know. There is always the stories on NPM with someone <laughs> that just change a line in one library and then millions of libraries infected and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, yeah, I mean, the point of the third party is super important with security because um, when you do all the shift left and developers need to be more worried about security, like a practice that we all need to adopt. Think about every third party as something that can get us to trouble. I think with Sentry and also I mean, with my previous company, Rookout, which is also a debugging solution, I think those uh, scenarios really become very apparent or become very recursive. So <laughs> it's almost impossible to debug something without altering it a little bit. And even that little alteration can affect things like race conditions and Heisenbugs uh, dramatically. So, mm -hmm. and then you you have this tension between do I want, and it's a, basically the, the almost the uncertainty principle, like in physics. Uh, do I want to monitor and debug this, or do I want to actually see how it performs? And you have this constant tension. Um, yeah, and I'm not sure if there's a if there's a good solution. Maybe uh, like in physics, you like you move to another reality, and from that reality, maybe monitor this universe. I'm I'm not sure what would right. be the equivalent. In, um, oh, you can maybe go into a hypervisor mode in, in like uh, in the virtual machine, and th that yeah, can yeah. maybe work. But that's yeah. that's really a lot of effort to set up your debugging <laughs> just to I don't know set a breakpoint <laughs> or get another log line. 
I think that's part of why we we try to focus on like what's happening in production uh, mm-hmm. and, and trying to capture what's happening in production. And obviously there's going to be some performance implications to having a monitoring tool in addition to it all. Right. But ideally, we're, we're identifying the ones that that are even worse than that. And like a follow up to it is we recently decided to remove all cookies from our entire marketing site. So oh, wow. um, any of our and, and I and our product too, but like, you know, just everywhere we don't have cookies unless it's related to that exact session where you've logged in and you mm-hmm. have, you know, like agreed to have that be a part of your login, right? Um, but anywhere where you're not logged in, we are not tracking you whatsoever. And part of that is a security thing. Part of that is a privacy thing. Part of that is a performance thing, right? Like it's about um, really considering what is necessary to have for our customers, which includes kind of the buyer persona, but also our customers as developers. And how can we help developers do better with minimal impact to them? So improving the performance of our of our SDKs, improving the performance of our even static sites, reducing the amount of tracking that we're doing. Um, so I'm kind of curious, like, are are there, this is starting to become a thing, like removing cookies from your site. I've seen more and more companies start to pop up saying that they're doing that. Um, but I'm curious kind of y'all's perspective around things like cookies or things like social media integrations or or things like that, like, whether it's from a performance perspective or just a privacy perspective, what are your thoughts as developers on that? I can say as a as a developer, um, I feel I feel that cookies kind of get a bad rap. In the end of the day, it's just a mechanism to kind of perpetuate data, and um, and a lot of times as a user, you have a lot of control in which cookies you save or and not. It's very easy with uh, ad blockers today, and uh, it's it can be a legitimate thing just to maintain your session. But uh, there definitely there's a lot of noise that you can get with third-party cookies that uh, that can be annoying. Um, so, but personally, I'm um, I'm not worried about the privacy aspect. I feel that I I'm, I understand enough and I have enough tools that I can control it myself, regardless of the vendors I interact with. Uh, but I can see how it like uh, if my gran- grandmother, if she was still alive, she'd probably be drowning in cookies from all these third-party vendors. So. There's something to be said there for like your general audience. I do think that from a performance perspective, uh, it can be very traumatic, and a lot of times people misuse these tools. Like every like every tool could be like if you have a hammer and you're seeing nails all around. Yeah, it's it, you gotta be building uh, wrong things. And uh, I actually have a, a prominent example of that with uh, permit right now. So we do authorization. And we obviously connect the authentication. So we run into a lot of uses of the JSON web token. And that often is either persisted in a cookie or a, more frequently as a header. And people are like going gung-ho with it. Oh, I have this uh, certified, uh, verified document that can just push more claims in there. And I've seen companies, for example, go about pushing in all the routes that they have in their app and what the user is allowed to do or not. And they're not aware that this is sent for every request Oh this my god! Is slowing down your entire app, and I'm imagining it probably started with like, okay, I'll just put two routes here, and it's gonna be fine. But then another developer came in and said, oh, we're pushing the routes into the JSON web token. Sure, let's just add another couple, and uh, and then it uh, escalates very quickly. 
So yeah, there there's definitely abuse that can be both a security issue, a privacy issue, and dramatically a performance issue. And um, yeah, especially with shifting left, uh, it's our responsibility as developers to understand this stuff. But it's it's not always easy to kind of uh, get the grips on all of this. Uh, yeah. Hopefully listening to this podcast maybe helps. I don't know. Um, I remember when I started to code in .NET, I started with JavaScript back, the, back in 2010. I was, I think, one of the first ones that uh, believed in JavaScript as a programming language. But then I started to work with .NET, and I remember that one of the things that was so hard for me is the DLL that was complied, compiled to Artifact. So if I just wanted to click on something or library to understand how it works and how can I work better with it, I have no idea how to do it. There is just like a function signature that you can work with it. And I think it's about cultural thing with developers to be curious that I'm using now a library. I'm using now a third-party tool. I want to understand how is that working. I can How can I work better with that? And that's a, like is a symbiotic relationship between DevTool developers and developers themselves. Uh, they need to give the tools, but the developers also need to want like to use them to create better software. It's a really good point. I agree. And all I was going to say is I really, I like the fact that you're shifting away from collecting cookies because of the the point that um, Or said is that a lot of the general audience, they don't really understand what cookies are. It pops up. And you're like, oh, you want to accept it or not? And then I know in Europe, they have like better laws against like cookies. Mm -hmm. But in America, they don't. GDPR. Yeah. Yeah. Y'all have the GDPR. So I know in America, they don't. And like you gave that example of like older people just accepting things without really understanding it. So I do like that option that. You know, yeah, even things as simple as like we don't embed YouTube videos on our site anymore because YouTube has cookies. And so when you click play on the embedded YouTube video, YouTube is now grabbing your cookies, right? Or like, you know, putting cookies on your on your client. And and so it's 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 like I, I think or you you kind of mentioned this is like and it, it's about being very intentional with what you are including in your application, whether it's mm-hmm. you know, a website, like a static website, whether it's an actual application. Um, and Gabriel, you kind of mentioned this as well. Like if, if you're building dev tools, understand that developers are going to get curious, understand that they want to know how to you know integrate with this better and understand kind of be, be intentional about what you're including. I think is is really critical that's a, a lesson for life i think in general yes. and especially here <laughs> and i think it's a get, great cue to move to our third fact and that one belongs to rizel yeah all right so my fact has to do with like identity fraud and identity management um so i recently read this article that said like americans have like over a hundred passwords to remember but i know we have like password managers and all that but those can easily like get hacked um and i was just thinking about like identity management as a whole as well like mm-hmm. even your personal identity you might have like an id card you lose that you that gets stolen and then um deep fakes are really prevalent i just saw like literally before i came on this podcast open ai like um release this thing where like you can essentially do text to video now like you can put in text and it will generate a video for you um mm-hmm. so like a lot of that like identity fraud is really um ramping up and i think that means that our industry will eventually shift towards like more um cryptographic verification method 
Um, so I'll pause here, but I can like explain more. I don't really have like a question for y'all, but yeah, I can explain more. <laughs> no, it, it, you're bringing on a, an interesting and dramatic topic, like probably in two years time, maybe even less. All of these technologies that are already blooming will be prolific. It's it's going to be the entire space, like all the all the scammers and all the spammers, and the entire country of Nigeria are going to be using this tech uh, to uh, convince us to do a bunch of things. And it, I think, it really shakens the foundations of how we behave as humans. Like one of the most basic things that we have is if I see your face, I hear your voice, I get your mannerisms, I automatically assume that that's you. Um, and uh, we're now all talking, by the way, we're all most more people, more and more people were talking through uh, video conferences. Like we interact in person even less. Though I'm guessing deep faking in person interactions is also around the corner. But <laughs> scary. Uh, yeah. I, don't I know, do so. think like it, it has to do with like even just something like this podcast, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, Rizal and I, thank you so much for inviting us. And, and we wanted to come on here because we know you all running the podcast and, and you wanted to have us as guests because of who we are. And and mm -hmm. it, like the more that we create content, the more likely it is for someone to make a deep fake on us. And then it's our voices that can't be trusted anymore. Right. And I don't even just mean like my physical voice, like it is my actual physical voice. It's my face. It's 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 my writing. It's it's my name. And so I, I agree with you, Rizal, that like, you know, there needs to be some kind of verification that happens. And we saw this early with things like Twitter and verified users and, and things like that, especially for celebrities. Um, but I think it's going to cause a major shift in how we consume and trust content as well and what we can know to trust. Um, yeah. and, and on a similar note, like, you know, thinking about AI and and code being written by AI and AI being trained on code that has errors in it. And so then errors then being like okay. added to code that's written by AI, right? Like it's just this big cycle of, of what we say today on this podcast may not be true in a year. Yeah. And so if, yeah. if, if the AI is based off of these conversations, it's not going to be relevant in a year. And, and what code is written a year ago, isn't going to be relevant in a year. You know what I mean? So it's like, I think there's not only going to be a verifiable, like, ver ver verifiability. I don't know. There's not, that's not a word, but you know, issue. But I think there's also going to be a an issue when it comes to the quality and the accuracy of the content or the code or you know, fill in the blank here. I think it completely changes, potentially completely changes our definition of identity. Yeah. Um, so up till now we're not we're not like asking for certificates or secret tokens from one another but maybe we will maybe be like what's perceived as you is not enough maybe we need that authenticity or verification mechanisms and that would make i don't know if so now we start zoom calls with can anyone hear me we'll switch to uh can anyone verify that i am who i am are, are we all honestly as I, I have a six-year-old child and we have uh, a password for her and me and one for her and my mom, because if she were to get a call and it's mm -hmm. a deep fake of our voice and she says something, you know, so it's like, no, always verify with the password, you know, and it's a unique single word that isn't something common. You know, she loves dragons, but everyone knows that. So it's not dragon, you know, and, and we just have to like, 
and it, I think it's important though, right? Like it's it's scary. That's yeah. the world we live in. Yeah, yeah. And the the stuff y'all brought up actually touches on like part two, <laughs> which is the fact that like um the company I work at called TBD is actually working on like what y'all were saying, right? So um there's two different things. One is called like decentralized identifiers. And then the other one is called verifiable credentials. So when Orr brought up that idea of like having these certifications, like <laughs> it's and and a lot of people get like nervous when like you say the word decentralized, but like these are not like built on. Well, some people are building them on blockchain, but these are not particularly built on blockchain, right? They are mm-hmm. like um, basically just certificates that you can have and own and be like, hey, yeah, this is for sure my. De- this is for sure my driver's license because it was like cryptographically signed. It's like a JSON rep token now and I can yep. present it to this person and it was cryptographically signed by like the Department of Motor Vehicles or like this particular university or school or whatever. So I'm excited about that. And I did start to do a little bit more research and it's not only my company that has been working on that. And some people are actually like using this today, like people who use Blue Sky and have gotten themselves like verified kind of like you would on Twitter what's happening behind the scenes or underneath is you're using like a decentralized identifier or even like on LinkedIn where you can like verify that you work at a company you can either do that by email or you can do that by verifiable credential I'm really excited about decentralized IDs in general like I also just I love the idea of us, especially here in the States, owning our own medical records. Yeah. Like that would just be wonderful if if I could own them. I don't have to pay a hospital to get my own information. And I could move that from doctor to doctor, right? Instead of just relying on them to send the right documentation. And Though I don't think that actually would solve the problem because the, the fundamental problem with US healthcare is that it's, a, it's basically a monopoly. So they'll find oh, those yeah. companies will find another way to abuse this uh, I but know. i but <laughs> but this but this poses a lot of interesting questions about like what's down the road both in the uh, how we're going to behave as humans and the applications that we're going to use and before uh, uh, we get paralyzed with excitement and dread i think we should move to our fourth and last fact for this episode and that fact belongs to gabriel gabriel give us your fact absolutely so my fact today is going to help me in an icebreaker call when people will say, hell, Linux is better than Windows because probably Y2K error is also happening in Linux too. So apparently many Linux operate or Unix operation system saved the initial time, like January 1st, 1970, in a 32 integer, same as IPv4. And that's me in the middle, like uh, in the middle of, 38, we will have the same Y2K error in Unix-based system. Now, the good news is that many um, distributions already started to use 64 integer to store their time. But if, for example, one bank or maybe some mobile provider will forget to change it in their mainframe, probably in Y2 38 will not be able to do something. I don't know why. Maybe that hit our house. Here. Um, and that and that bring me a lot of memory. I was ten when um, Y2K error happened. I remember people were really worried about it, and that made me think about how people make small problems really large. And um, 
Also, when you talk about the IP and the IPv4 and 32 integer, I remember that when I I used to work in Cisco back in 2018, and I had a lot of RCs there, but I was really enjoyed the fact that IPv4 get the end of life. Not only me, Cisco stock also rise up because everyone just need to buy new switches, right? So all these problems just give us work and make sure that our stocks is rising and growing. Um, So yeah, I think that's the way that programming world is going, right? Every time someone, let's say, tell me like, hey, AI will replace us. I said, no, we are just program more and maybe it will be simple, but we'll get more and more computers in our life that will, someone will need to program, right? Uh, assuming that will exactly. be alive after, uh, after 2K38. I love that kind of all of our all of our facts today were about like something that seems fairly small when we're deciding it. Like, oh, let's have passwords for websites. Oh, you know, let's let's make IPv4, you know, 32 bit and 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 oh, let's 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 start having these like third party scripts so that we don't have to write that code for you know, and and it's just already there and. It all just kind of balloons and it's ballooned really quickly, I think, in the last five years, I would even say for all of these. Right. Um, but mm-hmm. I mean, you know, Gabriel, to mm-hmm. your fun fact, I, yeah. I I hope that we get an office space, too, is all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'd watch that. Yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's about time they do it now, even if I'm waiting for for that. Long. Right. I, yeah, I kind of feel like that the plot that we're living through is should be something like this, like. AI takes over all of our identities, but we're saved the last minute because of the Y2K38 bug. The all, the AI crashes, and that's how humanity right. uh, gets to. I want to see like Milton day. get locked out of the building, and he can't get in, but he, like he's got his stapler, and that's how we know it's him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I he's the, the I love that actor. I forgot his name, but that that character is like uh, the best right? in that movie. Yeah. Something to yep. look forward to. So every every little bad thing also comes with a little bit of good. Definitely. I have a question. Since y'all said that you experienced like I was young. So what was like the silliest thing that happened? Oh my god! Oh, I have a great story about it. My neighbors bought full on like apocalyptic suits and had like like literally and had like a bunch of like water and these gas masks and everything. It was pretty wild. <laughs> yeah, I didn't get uh, something as exciting as that. Uh, the most I got was like getting really intense on installing Windows ninety eight second edition. So <laughs> that so making sure that my computer would work the day after that was like the uh, the peak of my worries at the time. <laughs> um, but yeah, it ended up like I. Like everyone was excited. Oh, what's going to happen? And we waited for it, and then nothing happened. And uh, what well, to some degree, it was uh, it was a little bit of a letdown. I kind of expected expected nuclear reactors to explode and satellites to fall off from space, but it was instead of a bang, it was a whimper. Tactic. <laughs> yeah, very yeah. much so. I had no clue. I was like five years old, just in kindergarten. So I grew up in a religious community, and we are saving the day of Shabbat. So in the from like Friday night evening to Saturday night, we are not using computer, not actually electricity, etc. And the Y2K error was in Friday evening, and I remember that 
I just went to sleep because no one worried about it. It was like, hey, we anyway did not touch the computer or something. Whatever, we'll find out what happened after Shabbat. And then in mid midnight, I woke up. The neighbor in a front of our building just went out of the bal to the balcony and screamed like, hey, nothing happened. <laughs> Nothing about the electricity is still working. Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> like all this trade for I'll never forget it. Oh, that's great. <laughs> I think it, this also tells you a lot about the how times change or like the culture change. Yeah. So back then, everyone was like, oh, this is a big issue. Everyone should talk about it. Everyone should do something about it. And then we were all kind of like sheeped into the, into the funnel and just uh, went with it. I think if something like that happened today, you'll have so many different voices say, no, this is a oh hoax. This is something the Illuminati are running. This is, <laughs> this is actually, no, it's good for the lizard people. You should actually go to this protest to support uh, Y2K. I, I think it will be It's going to be reset directions. to December 13th, 1901. That's Taylor Swift's birthday. She must be behind it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Stuff like that. And like, it's all it's all because of the Super Bowl. That's why they're right? changing the, the times. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think it was, so it would be interesting to see by <laughs> 2K38. Uh, yeah. I kind of uh, want to make merch. <laughs> I think you should. I think you should. You should start planning ahead. Uh, it's right? going to be a turbulent road. I, I'm, I'm kind of confident. I'm going to make like gas masks. <laughs> gas masks. And, just, and and clocks that uh, uh, just take you like to that time. And uh, yeah. uh, maybe uh, an upgrade software that uh, increases your uh, the integer sizes for for specific applications, like uh, just uh, um, maybe things for developers, like a third-party package that you import into your code uh, right? that will make it uh, uh, date aware. That'll just add a Milton stapler on your code. Nothing nothing helpful. Just, you know, I'm going to have AI make yes. a Office yes. Space 2. <laughs> yeah, you can actually do that. You know? <laughs> I know. <laughs> uh, and I'm already subscribing to your Substack to uh, watch Perfect. the... The teaser or preview of that movie. <laughs> Perfect. And, and on that positive note and uh, uh, expectation for both uh, uh, The End of Times and uh, Office Space 2, I think we can wrap up. Uh, thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Rizal. Thank you, Gabriel, for joining on this episode. And uh, to our audience, thank you for listening. I think this is the perfect time to wrap up the show. If you liked this podcast, tell your friends about it. If you didn't like it, tell your enemies about it.